Good morning. This morning we are reading from Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new here, it's, it's been my habit to uh, walk us through meditations on the Psalms each summer. And we happen to be at Psalm 26. It's where we're going to... Uh, leave the Psalms this summer. We're going to get back into our Genesis series next week. Uh, so we come to Psalm 26, and and listen, as 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 Christians, how do we interact with uh, people who are different from us? And particularly, I mean our worldview, our faith, our belief system, our religion. How do we interact with? How do we work alongside of? How do we study? alongside of people who are different than us, especially folks who are hostile. How do Christians live alongside of, work alongside of, study alongside of people who are different and hostile to your worldview, to your belief system, to your way of life? Christians know, especially from the New Testament, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Jesus prayed something like that. But how do you maintain that mentality? Especially when people are opposed to you, opposed to what you believe, opposed to what you represent. There's a lot about this that we can discover by reading the New Testament. We're not in the New Testament today. We're in the Psalms. But I do think there's some insight that we can gain by seeing how one believer, David, David the king, David the shepherd, David the warrior, uh, we gain some insight by seeing how David prayed in a similar dilemma. And it's really, it really comes down to this. It's a matter of whose opinion matters to you most. For the Christian to be able to exist well, to live well, to work well, to study well, to play well in an environment that at times could be hostile to you, it really becomes a matter of whose opinion matters the most to you. And it's also a matter of where you want to be most. In whose company you want to be. And I hope you will see, as we look at Psalm 26 together, that faith... The kind of faith the Bible talks about. Faith cultivates a longing for God's presence. A desire for God's presence that is greater than any other desire that we have. 
And as we walk through Psalm 26, you're going to see the dilemma of David's particular situation. You're also going to see the solution for David's situation that comes about while he engages in prayer. And then finally, we're going to see the reward of David's situation. And hopefully we'll be able to apply all of this to our own situation right now. Or a situation you may have been in recently. A hostile situation. Or situations that we may be headed for, uh, of which we're not yet aware. Okay, so the dilemma, the solution, and the reward. Here is David's dilemma. He has no control over other people's opinions. David has no control over the accusations from other people about him that are floating around. Now, maybe this took place when he was a king. We don't know. But, of course, you know, with leadership, there are always accusations floating around about you and you're any, if you're in any kind of a leadership position, whether it's in your own house or with your company or whether you're the head of a nation, which at some point David was. But he has no control over what people are saying about him. And so in verse 1, he begins his singing. He begins his prayer with these words, Vindicate me, O Lord. Apparently, his character had been attacked. And we're not sure by whom. We don't know who was attacking him. He does, however, paint a vivid picture of a group of people that he doesn't particularly admire. Now, maybe this is a group of people that's accusing him. Or maybe he's being accused of hanging around with these people, associating with, conspiring with, uh, befriending them. We don't know, but this is what he says about them. He uses some choice words to describe them. He calls them men of falsehood. He calls them hypocrites. He describes them as evildoers, the wicked. He even calls them bloodthirsty men. He doesn't hold back his opinions. You know, the Psalms are very honest. Raw. The Psalms are raw and honest. And, and the Psalms reveal openly to God in prayer what, 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 what you and I have discovered throughout our lives, whether it was unfortunately in our homes as children or on the playground or when you got to middle school or when you got to college or, or when you landed your first job in some big corporation. There are nasty people out there who do not care at all to hurt you if it is advantageous to them. you experienced that before? The world is full of nasty people. And David is just, we're not allowed to say that, right? But, but David's honest about it. He's praying to God. He goes, there are nasty people out there, bloodthirsty men. You know, after God, the Psalms talk about enemies more than anything else. Take a look. The Psalms are littered with talk and prayer and distress and anxiety and emotion about enemies. This is not going to sound very religious to you, but I will tell you this, that in my own life, I, I would say confidently that my prayer life has been, its, has been the healthiest the most consistent, the deepest in times of stress. Because having enemies makes you pray more. 
David's dilemma is that he has to live the, he has to live with these people. They're not going anywhere. They're going to say what they want to say. They're going to think what they want to think, regardless of how he behaves. And he's convinced that he hasn't done anything wrong in this psalm. He has to live with these people without losing it, without losing his temper, without responding in kind, without making mistakes and saying things that really do invite more accusations. On the one hand, David doesn't want to be associated with the wicked. And he says quite remarkably in verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers. There's an ugly word for you. I hate the assembly of evildoers. Now, on the other hand, David knows he's not all that much different than the wicked. He says in verse 11, redeem me. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. He knew he needed forgiveness for things. So on the one hand, he doesn't want to be associated with the wicked. On the other hand, he knows he's not all that different at heart from them. And so this is a healthy thing. David, in his prayers, is wrestling with these two ideas, and he's, he holds a contempt for other people's sins, but he also hold, he's sober about his own. You see that? But does it bother you that David is talking about hatred here? This is all, there's 150 Psalms. This is all over the Psalms. They talk about hatred. And, and quite frankly, in our day and age, that is unsettling. Hate is not a good thing, as we understand it in our society. So if you look at something like, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and that brings you concern, of course, of course, I understand. But let's talk about what David means when he says, I hate the assembly of evildoers. This is not social bigotry. David is not committing prejudice. He's not committing self-righteousness all of those things would indeed be shameful. David is do so, doing something else. He's exercising spiritual discernment. This is spiritual discernment. This is a question of who does he want to be associated with. This is a question of who does he align himself with. Spiritual discernment expressed as intense emotion, like hate. For instance, if you look at verse 8, he says just the opposite. Oh, Lord, I love. Now, there's a strong concept that leads to strong emotions as well. Love. He says, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So he's saying, on the one hand, I hate the assembly of the wicked, but I love the house of the Lord. He's strong so if, if David is saying, I love to be with God, I love to associate myself with him, I love to align myself with God in his ways and his wisdom, then it's only, it, the only sensible posture for David towards the wicked is the very opposite of love. Apathy towards the wicked is not enough. Indifference towards the wicked is not enough. And so hate here, from David's perspective, is not used to express self-righteousness or racism or ignorance or bigotry. Hate is used here to express his absolute opposition to evil. 
Eugene Peterson wrote a great book on how the Psalms help us learn how to pray. It's on our book table. It's called Answering God. And Eugene Peterson said this, that, that the Psalms, the, the main work of the Psalms is not to train us in judgmental moralism. That's not what we're talking about. It's not to train us in judgmental moralism, but it's to grapple with evil. In David's prayers, he wrestles with the concept of evil in the world. Eugene Peterson went on to write, On behalf of all the dispossessed, the mocked, the dehumanized of the earth, the Psalms and the psalmists pour into the ears of God their sightings of the enemy. And he goes on to write, This hate arises in a context of holiness. Hate, prayed, takes our lives to bedrock where the foundations of justice are being laid. And I think that's a very helpful way to understand what the psalmists are getting at when they talk about what they hate. See, sinful hate is deadly. Sinful hate will always lead to destruction because it is rooted in our own self-interest. But holy hate is redemptive. Holy hate can only lead to redemption, to healing, to clarity, to restoration, because holy hate is rooted in God's goodness. Holy hate is rooted in God's glory, in God's justice. And that's the difference. And so Psalms teach us that the best place to wrestle with powerful emotions. God knows you feel that way. The best place to wrestle with powerful emotions is in the presence of God. He can handle it. He can take it. He knows what you're thinking already. You go to Him, into His presence, in a life of prayer, and you wrestle over these issues, and you wrestle with your Creator. You pray and you wait until a solution comes. Whether it's right in that moment or whether it's a year or a decade later, you wrestle. You wrestle with your thoughts in prayer. It, it's, it's in this crucible of prayer. It's, it's in this refining furnace of prayer that solutions to our dilemmas can arise. And that's the case for David. See, the solution is this for David, knowing whose opinion matters most. David knows whose opinion should hold the most weight in the situation. He's not simply asking for vindication. It's something more subtle than that. He's asking that God would test him. Now, that's interesting to me. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. He knows there are many scathing opinions about him in circulation, but he knows that God's opinion alone truly matters. I find it really fascinating here that David, in the midst of all the criticism, is not defending himself. He invite, he does just the opposite. He doesn't defend himself. We can assume in this situation that whatever 
Whatever the goods are on David, they're false. They're not true. They're not fair. They're not just. And instead of defending himself, he submits himself to God's scrutiny. Instead of defending himself and talking back to everybody else, he entrusts himself, as the Apostle Peter said, to the one who judges justly. He, he invites God's analysis on his life and his behavior. He said in verse 1, not only, Lord, vindicate me, but he said, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And he said in verse 4, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. David seems convinced that, that there's n he has no reason to feel guilty. He has nothing to be ashamed about in this situation. Nonetheless, he invites God's scrutiny. He invites God's opinion into the situation rather than defending himself to the people who are accusing him. Is God's opinion of you the one that you're giving the most weight to in your life. Think about that today. Think about it this week. Does God's opinion of you matter the most? Or is it the opinion of someone else? When you're judged, when you're accused, do you defend yourself? Or do you submit yourself to God's analysis like you see here with David in prayer? It was among the Corinthian church that he had planted and discipled years earlier that the Apostle Paul received intense criticism from. There was a faction of people in the Corinthian church who were falsely accusing Paul and questioning publicly Paul's character, his authority as apostle, and the nature of whether or not he was genuine. And Paul, in a letter to the Corinthians, said this about them and about that faction in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The English is a little difficult there. What Paul is basically saying is, look, your opinion of me, I'm not all that worried about it. You're accusing me of things? Okay, that's not a big deal. Because you know what? I'm not sure that I've done anything wrong. My conscience is clear. Even so... My conscience may be wrong. It's not enough for me to have a clear conscience because maybe I'm wrong. So I don't even judge myself. I don't care that you're judging me and I don't even judge me. I'm going to let God judge me. I'm going to rest on his opinion. I'm not even gonna, I don't think I've done anything wrong, but I'm not even going to trust my own opinion. It's God's opinion that matters the most. He had a clear conscience, but he knew he could have been wrong, so he submitted himself to the justice of God and to God's scrutiny you won't always receive positive feedback, right? You won't always enjoy fair assessments of your character. You will probably always find that somebody in your life, somebody where you work, is disappointed with you. Or worse, spreading things about you that aren't true. 
holding a position about you that is just wrong and hurtful. But when God's opinion matters most, when his opinion weighs the most according to you, then you can, as David says in verse 12, you can stand on level ground. God will confirm to you what you've been doing right. He'll also reveal to you what you've been doing wrong. If you let him do that. We desperately need God's righteous opinion to avoid the way of the wicked. This is so important for us. For some of you, you're in new jobs, right? You've, you've transitioned or transferred recently. You're in a new working environment. New work environment. And you're trying to figure out the ropes and the system and the culture there and how things, how things work. This is important advice for you. You desperately need God's righteous opinion as you navigate those new circumstances. Some of you have started in a new school. Some of you are freshmen in college. Some of you are freshmen in high school. Some of you are going to middle school and elementary school. Probably not many elementary school people in the room. But middle and up, you're all here. I see you. This is really valuable advice. I'm talking straight to you if you're under 18 years old. And straight to everybody else. But listen, we desperately need God's righteous opinion of us and of what's going on around us to avoid the way of the wicked. Not even David thinks he's um, inoculated from the way of the wicked. He goes out of his way to ask God to redeem and to forgive him. And this is really important as we exist and work and study and play in a world where sometimes people are going to be hostile to you because of what you believe. And I think C.S. Lewis did a really good job in, in, in helping, helping people understand how to process the hatred that you see the psalmist talking about in application to the question of who do I hang around with? Who do I partner with? Who do I serve and minister to? Shouldn't I serve and minister to and partner with everybody? Because God calls us to love everybody. Well, yes. But how do you be wise about that in a hostile environment? And C.S. Lewis made a really good point that helped me. He said, I am inclined to think a Christian would be wise to avoid where he decently can any meeting with people who are bullies, lascivious, cruel, spiteful, and so forth. Uh, lascivious means sexually immoral, depraved, base. Lewis went on to write, not because we are too good for them, in a sense because we're not good enough. We are not good enough to cope with all the temptations, nor clever enough to cope with all the problems which an evening spent in such society produces. And we, he went on to write, what makes this contact with wicked people so difficult is that to handle the situation, to handle the situation successfully requires not merely good intentions, humility, and courage. It may call for social and even intellectual talents, which God has not given us. It is therefore not self-righteousness, but mere prudence to avoid it when we can. The psalmists were not quite wrong. 
I want to be abundantly clear so that you don't mis, mis, misunderstand me. Because our vision and mission as a church is loaded with love, with grace, and generosity and service. The Christian life should be missional. The Christian life should be evangelistic. The Christian life should be gracious and generous to all people. So you can't say, I didn't say that. But none of us possess every tool. None of us have every bit of of insight, every talent, every gift. Not all of us are always strong. None of us are always strong. And so like David, we must be conscious, conscious of our own wicked tendencies and allow God's opinion to guide us, to guide us where we should sit. Who we should stand with. With whom we should walk. Who should be your friends? What endeavors to partner in? Who you decide to help? Who you decide to serve? And the beautiful thing is, God's answer to each of us individually will look different. I will not be able to walk into some circumstances that some of you can walk into without being morally tempted and falling. But you may be able to. You may not be able to have certain conversations with people that God has equipped me to have. And so we don't have to judge each other and say, look who he's hanging out with. Well, of all the people. Well, maybe he can hang out with that person and not fall where I can't. Jesus was criticized all the time for hanging around with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and traitors. Jesus was God. I'm not. You're not. He can hang around with anybody and it was somehow productive. But for you and I, we've got to be the church. We've got to be a team. And we've got to realize we have different experiences, different bits of wisdom, different strengths. And I may go to somebody that you can't and vice versa. And so we should not judge one another for who we're friends with, for who we're trying to help. But we all, all of us, and here's the balance with this, we all need to avoid wickedness. We all need to develop a godly contempt for wickedness and not call it righteousness when it's not. We all have to walk the same line with that, but approach it in different ways depending on on the people that God has made us individually, individually. And you know, for you, if you submit yourself to the opinion of God and make that the most weighty in your life, there's a reward for you, friend. There's a reward for anyone who submits to God's good judgment right now in this life. And the reward is God's presence. We've talked about this before. It, It sounds like a letdown, but it's really amazing. The reward you get when you follow God is God. At the end of the day, we learn this following Abraham and Sarah. The reward is you, God said, you get me. At the end of the day, that's the reward. I'm the reward. I'm your reward. That doesn't excite us all that often, and, and I think that's the problem. The reward is 
And David comes to it in prayer. The beauty of God's presence. The levelness. The objectivity. The clarity and the light. Of God's presence. Look at verse 8. He said this is like the heart of the psalm. This is the heart of the song. If we wrote it 20 years ago on the, for the radio. This would be the chorus that it kept, keeps going back to. But he says in verse 8. O Lord I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I've, I've come to think that loving God's presence, because usually we're, we're, we're hoping the reward is something else. If we trust God and follow him, he's going to give us the job we're asking him for. Or he's going to give us that relationship or that status. Or those people won't think that way about you anymore. But David says, that's not the reward. Changing the opinions of my enemies is not my reward. The reward is my heavenly father. The reward is being in the house of God, being in his presence. And I really think that's a required taste. It's like food. Like certain food, when you're a kid, tastes gross to you. And then as an adult, you begin to enjoy it. There are ethnic food in my family, like Sicilian, weird Sicilian peasant dishes that were a big deal to all my relatives, but as a kid, I thought were gross. There's this one dish called frosia. It's it's an omelet. It's like a little Sicilian omelet. Scrambled eggs, uh, you throw in Parmesan cheese and some Italian seasoned breadcrumbs and and, uh, fresh mint leaves. But now here's the kicker. You, you destroy it, you drown it in, in vinegar. And then you put it in the fridge, and then you serve it and eat it cold. Yet, see, horrified looks on your face. Look, <laughs> you, you are never going to get a... I, I, I looked at my relatives saying, what is wrong with you? You know, I'm like five years old, eight years old, ten years old. You are never going to get a kid to eat eggs that have been doused in vinegar, served cold. You're not going to get a kid to eat something like that. You know, I think like, come on, people. We were peasants a hundred years ago. Like, we need to start acting like Americans and eating Twinkies and things like that. But enough with this food. But you want to know something? It is one of the tastes that I crave the most in my life. I thought it was ridiculous and senseless as a kid, but it's an acquired taste, and I love it now, and, and I cook it now. Hey, maybe I'll even cook it for you. We'll have to do like an international foods day or something. Um, the Sicilians need their table, I guess. So God, you know, loving God's presence, desiring God's presence, I have come to know that it is an acquired taste that we reject in the beginning, but as we mature, we begin to crave it more and more and it is our only sustenance in life in times of extreme duress David's been through it before that's why he's going back and saying what I need more than anything is God's righteous opinion and what I need more than anything the best place to be is in his good beautiful presence there's no other place that he'd rather have been and he says, what, how, how does he say it? The place where your glory dwells, God, is where I want to be the most. The place where your glory dwells. Well, in his day, that was the tabernacle. And later it would be the temple. 
But in the New Testament, in the gospel, John chapter 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word there, the word is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. The Bible tells us that the eternal son of God became a human being and made his dwelling, the place where his glory dwells, this right here. Our life, all of it, all that we experience, who we are, physically, tangibly. Jesus Christ made the place where his glory dwells, this life. He took up residence here to rescue us from our own wickedness. But Jesus was unlike David. See, David knows, David knows that he's blameless in this situation, but he wouldn't always be blameless. Jesus was always blameless in every situation. He lived a holy life. I mean, holy, holy. The definition of holy. He was pure. He was perfect. The righteousness of God required in humanity was fulfilled and seen perfectly in Jesus. But on the cross, on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago, when Jesus hung there, all the wickedness was thrown on him. That's why he got up there. When Jesus, the perfect son of God, hung on that cross, he was counted with the wicked. Think of, think of what, a, what a scandal. That the perfect, beautiful son of God who dwelt among us was rejected by us. And when he hung on that cross, God laid on Jesus the horrible record that, that is next to my name on the ledger. That is next to your name. It was, you know, Jesus was counted amongst the wicked. Jesus was counted amongst the hypocrites. Jesus was counted as though he were a bloodthirsty person. So that you and I would have the opportunity to not be counted that way anymore. To lose that bad name on the ledger. And by faith, when we receive Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, when His opinion matters most in our lives, the Bible promises us that we receive His Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We looked at it earlier today when we read from Romans chapter 8, where Paul said, the Spirit of God Himself bears witness with our that we are children of God. When you trust Christ, when you follow Christ, when he has the most weight in your life, you get the gift of faith and God literally gives you the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so guess what? There's no temple anymore because you're it. The place where Jesus' glory dwells is in you. That's why we don't judge each other. Because we're each a temple of the spirit of God. Jesus came among us, but by faith he has given his spirit to dwell inside of you. And you are the new dwelling place of God. You have something that David didn't have, and you will never lose it. So faith cultivates a longing for God's good presence. It cultivates a desire to be in God's house. It cultivates an appetite for God's cooking. So I'm asking you today, I'm challenging you today, if you've never done this before or if you've forgotten, decide right now who you belong to. Who 
do you belong to? Whose opinion matters the most to you? Who do you align with? Who do you want to be associated with even when criticism comes your way? Where do you stand? And let me encourage you to consider this while you ask yourself that question. Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So as you begin this new job or these new classes, as you have opportunities to enter into new relationships, seek his opinion most. And enjoy his presence among us. Enjoy his presence within you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we long to be with you in the place where your glory dwells. Father, in faith, we forsake any association that minimizes you in our lives. Father, in faith, we enter into redemptive, healing, self-sacrificing relationships with others according to your wisdom, according to the light of your truth, in the love of Christ. And we enjoy and rest and worship in the beauty of your presence. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.